Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. The prison guard shut the iron door behind. If you're completely satisfied with your mandolin playing, you can zone out for the next 30 seconds. This won't help you. But if you're stuck and want to get on the fastest path to being a strong mandolin player, listen up. With so many different mandolin learning resources online, it's nearly impossible to know which ones are going to give you the best results. Going through all of those resources is guaranteed to waste some time, especially since many probably won't even work. My advice? Take the guesswork out of learning the mandolin with the Mandolin Treasure Chest, a comprehensive step-by-step guide to learning the mandolin. You'll find everything you need, from playing your first note, all the way to soloing in tons of different keys. Find the link in the show notes to get the full details. Take 20% off at checkout for a limited time only. Thank you, Jared. And I'd like to remind all of you that you have until December 31st, midnight Eastern time, to cash in on that 20% discount on the fabulous mandolin treasure chest. And I know lots of mandolins came out from under the tree this year, and there are thousands of people who want to learn to play the mandolin, so be sure to point them towards my mandolin treasure chest. And in addition to the already insane savings that the mandolin treasure chest uh, contains, you can take an additional 20% off by using the coupon code found in the description for this podcast. And in case you don't know where to find that, just if you're using Apple Podcasts, just look in the description, you will see the code right there and you enter it at checkout for an additional 20% off. Or as always, you may go to grasstalkradio.com and slide down to this episode all the way at the very bottom of that extremely long list of podcasts to this episode, click on that, and I will put the discount coupon code there as well. So you can save 20% off of that fabulous mandolin treasure chest. Now, today's episode, I'm going to do what a lot of people are doing, and I'm not going to uh, follow my usual plan. My usual plan is to always talk about bluegrass, bluegrass, bluegrass. And folks, it's Christmas. It's Christmas. The wrapping paper and the boxes are scattered all over the floor. Jackson had a great Christmas. My wife had a great Christmas. The dogs and the donkeys and the cats and everyone had a great Christmas. And now it's that time right after Christmas where nobody's really doing anything. Nobody's working. Nobody's going anyplace. Very little picking going on. And I had a little backlog. Back in episode 90, we had a hurricane hit down here. And if you go back to episode 90, you will find a podcast that I did. And I said, you know, if I ever start another podcast that is not bluegrass related, this is an example of what I might do. And I put out that one podcast really just as a placeholder because I was so busy sawing up trees and we had lots of down timber here on the property. And I was just way too busy to prepare and organize any kind of bluegrass podcast. So I put out that episode 90, and it was entitled My Life as a Stripper. Well, that was the first of several other episodes that I created for this non-existent podcast. I always thought, you know, I've got a lot of goofy stories and experiences and things that I can tell about bluegrass, but I've got a lot of other things, too. 
And I started recording a series that I thought, well, if I build up a couple of them, maybe I'll start an additional podcast that's not bluegrass related, just telling crazy stories and things like that, reminisces and so on. And uh, that's what I'm going to do today. It's Christmas. It's after Christmas and New Year's is coming. And I thought I would just pull up one of those that I recorded about, I guess, maybe maybe over a year ago, two years ago. And it's just been sitting there. And I thought you might enjoy uh, hearing it just for something to do, because I noticed hardly anybody is actually putting out podcasts right now. Everybody seems to be on hiatus, you know, um, except for the corporate controlled podcasts that come out like clockwork. But, you know, your mom and pop podcasts like this one, nobody is really doing much of anything. And so just to give you something to do, I thought you might enjoy hearing this podcast. And it tells the story of my first pay stub, the first job I ever had that I got an actual check and a pay stub. And I hope you enjoy it. And remember, as always, thank you, patrons over at patreon.com slash Bradley Laird. Thank you for all you do. And thank all the customers who have gone to BradleyLaird.com and enjoyed my free stuff as well as my paid instructional material. Go for it. Grab everything you need to learn how to play that instrument. And just have fun with this little episode. By the way, uh, the music you will hear, the little segue music into this crazy episode, is my high school band. I think this record is, I, I want to say, uh, 1973, 74 maybe. This is my high school band playing on a record album. It was my first record album that I was ever on, and I'm very proud of it. The Morrow High School Band. I can't remember the name of the march now, but it's some sort of march. And uh, I was tooting the French horn. This is my first commercial recording. <laughs> so anyway, enjoy that. And then I'll go into the story and tell you about uh, working at the newspaper. And uh, at the end, I'm not going to come back in. We're just going to hear more of the old high school band tooting away there. And uh, just want to wish everybody a Merry Christmas Happy holidays. Happy New Year. Enjoy time with your family. You never know how much time you have, so enjoy it. And enjoy this crispy cold weather. It was 22 degrees this morning Fahrenheit here, and uh, the ground was crunchy. It was like walking on little shards of glass this morning when I came out to feed the donkeys and the cat and the dog, and etc. Anyway, Y'all have a merry, merry Christmas. I hope you enjoy this little story, and I'll be back next week for more bluegrass nonsense here on the Old Grass Talk Radio. Take it away, Morrow High School Band. You know, I've saved a lot of weird stuff over over the course of my life. A lot of strange little objects, little historic artifacts of my youth. And I will occasionally run across one of these, and it will bring back a lot of memories. And I found one the other day. It's, it's amazing that I still have this after all these years, but I found the very first 
pay paycheck stub that I ever received at a job. It was my first real job where I was actually paid by check with a check stub. And it was for the, the grand total for the week was $8 and 34 cents. And I have it here. I'll read you the breakdown, the little stub, the little, the check was handwritten and the little stub is about, I don't know, three by four inches. And it says 5.5 hours at $1 and 60 cents per hour. That's $8 and 80 cents. And then there was 46 cents withheld for, um, FICA and the uh, net $8 and 34 cents. And I remember getting that check. I got it one week after I started this job and that was my pay for the week. So let me tell you about this job. It was a part-time job and I was 14, possibly 15 years old. I know that I didn't drive at that time. I didn't have a driver's license, but my brother did. And we would ride together because we both worked there, but we only worked at this place on Tuesday, Tuesday after school, we went there and here's how it went down. My dad was a newspaper guy. As I was growing up, he worked at newspaper after newspaper. We, we, we moved around from Indiana to Ohio, back to Indiana, a couple of places in Illinois. He worked for the Chicago Tribune, just all over the place. And eventually, he ended up down in Marietta, Georgia, working at a newspaper there. And what was happening in Atlanta back in the early 70s, late 60s, early 70s, was tremendous amount of growth in the suburbs of Atlanta. Atlanta was really growing up, so a lot of these towns around Atlanta, like Marietta, like Jonesboro, and other places around Atlanta, had weekly newspapers, fairly small populations in the counties. Maybe, you know, let's say a county had 30,000 residents, and they had a one weekly newspaper. Well, the county was beginning to grow, and there was some building going on. Uh, some malls were being built. The interstate I-75 was being completed, running through Atlanta. So there was a big growth spurt around Atlanta. So many of these newspapers were switching from a, from a weekly to a daily. They were becoming dailies. And my dad was a circulation manager, which meant, you know, everything, once the paper came off the press, getting it distributed to the readers all fell under his umbrella, which, which basically meant, um, managing the circulation list, the rack routes, the carriers. And in my younger days, the carrier was always, you know, a kid on a bicycle with a paper route. And, uh, I'm not going to go into those early stories of paper routes here, but when we moved down to Georgia, he went to work at a newspaper in Marietta and was innovative in that I think 
at least he said this was true, that he was the first to introduce the housewife as the newspaper carrier because suburbs weren't built for kids with bicycles. Everything was spread out a little bit. And so cars were, were more required. It wasn't like the old town where the old town had a central, a central town downtown. And then the housing just expanded from that and you could get everywhere in town on a bicycle. No, now they would go out sometimes five miles out of town and drop a subdivision in. And then three miles over here was another subdivision. And they would, some farmer would sell off a 10 acre field and they'd build a little strip mall and it would be two miles away. And it became very difficult for kids on bicycles to run these routes. So he brought in the idea of getting housewives with their station wagons to drive the routes. And of course, you know, Oftentimes, mom was driving the car and a couple of kids in the back seat rolling papers and somebody in the passenger seat, one of the kids tossing papers out the window into the driveway. And that's that became the new paper boy. It became, you know, a mom and a couple of kids in a car. So dad did that in in Marietta, Georgia for a while. And then there was a a newspaper in Jonesboro, Georgia, that was an old weekly. It was called the, hmm, I think it was called the Clayton County News. And it was a weekly paper. And they were growing similar to what was happening up around Marietta. And they decided to go daily. And they hired Dad to come down there and be the circulation manager. So he was doing the same thing down there, enlisting housewives for paper routes to either, you know, toss individual papers out the window to the subdivisions that were popping up all over Clayton County or to run rack routes. And let's say you were a housewife and you had a rack route. I know this very well because my mother was immediately summoned to be a rack delivery, have a rack route. And she had about maybe 15 boxes, newspaper boxes scattered around. And she would pick up her papers every day. And, you know, a certain number of papers would be doled out to her. Maybe it was like 95 papers. And she would get those newspapers and then go around to all these boxes and put in so many papers in each box. And based upon the records of sales, you knew that this box would usually sell 12 and this one would only sell five. So you, you would try to make sure it never ran out, but you didn't put too many in there because the way it worked in those days is the carrier was billed for the papers that they received. And then they got the money from those and they would pay for the papers that they received and the difference they got to keep. So you didn't want returns. You didn't want to buy more papers than were selling. But on certain days, like when the grocery ads came out, you would sell more. So you would bump your numbers up then. And certainly the Sunday edition was a, was a different number entirely. You'd often carry three or four times as many papers on Sunday as you did throughout the week. So this is how the, the newspaper business changed from boys throwing newspapers to housewives driving around doing rack routes and also neighborhood delivery. 
So anyway, Pop has gotten this new job down in Jonesboro. This is probably about 1972 or thereabouts. And uh, there is a job opportunity for a couple of enterprising young men in the press room. He comes home one day and says uh, to me and my brother, uh, if you want a job, you can uh, talk to so-and-so. The guy's name was Dennis. Talk to Dennis, and uh, they they need some help in the press room. Okay. So the deal was, after school, we'd get out of school 3.30 or so, and we'd get dropped off. My mother would pick us up, or my brother, because he had a driver's license. Sometimes he would just pick me up. And we'd go to the newspaper, arrive there about 4 o'clock, go in the back. Now, Pop would still be there because... His workday wasn't over until 5 o'clock, and then usually the tail end of his workday was he would get the phone calls of people, you know, through the paper in the bushes, or somebody missed me on my route, and he would take all these notes and apologize and stuff, and he would, after work, drive around to all these people and bring them their newspaper. So he had that to do after work, and that would, you know, eat up you know, from five o'clock to six o'clock, he'd be riding around putting out fires and then he'd go home because Tuesday night was his bowling night. He and my mother were on a, on a bowling league. So they went to bowl every Tuesday night. So my brother and I would show up and we might see pop, but basically we had stuff to do in the back and here's the kind of stuff we did. And first of all, let me explain why we were there on Tuesday night. And that's the only night we worked. The daily paper that Dad worked for, they published every day. So throughout the, the morning, the paper was getting finished up in terms of paste up and getting on the press and actually getting printed. So by about noon, the press was rolling, and throughout the afternoon and early evening, the paper was being distributed, and that happened every day. But there was a little weekly newspaper in a neighboring county called the Fayette County News. I think that was the name of it. That they published every Wednesday. They were still weekly. And they did not have their own printing press. So they had ad salespeople and subscription people and an editor and reporters and things like this. They had a little office and they did all their own typesetting and layout. They would paste up their whole newspaper, but they didn't have a press to print it on. So Tuesday morning, somebody from the, I might've been the Fayette County Journal. I don't remember. Anyway, somebody from that newspaper would bring this stack of all the paste ups for, for their newspaper they're weekly and it was a two-section paper probably probably 16 pages total in two sections you know eight and eight and they would bring those up and when the daily that my dad worked for finished at about noon the pressman would make some overtime by hanging around and printing that weekly for that neighboring newspaper so when I would arrive there at four o'clock, the, that weekly was getting set up to run. 
And so they would take those large sheets of kind of like, almost like a poster board with all the type and photos and everything pasted on there. And they would be in the dark room shooting negatives, taking photographs of these and then burning, stripping the negatives and then burning plates and then getting the plates on the press and setting up to run. And they would run, you know, section a, and those would be coming off the press and being stacked. And then they would take all the plates off, wash down the blankets and, you know, revamp the press to run section B and their press could only run one section at a time. They couldn't run. It, it wasn't a big enough operation to run a and B at the same time and have them automatically come off as a finished a B paper. So they run a X number of copies. Maybe it was 6,000 copies or something. And then tear down the press and reset up for section B run 6,000 of those. So when I would arrive there, there would be me and my brother and my brother had being a little older and having a bit more experience in these things. He worked back there in the dark room and he was shooting these negatives and stripping the negatives and burning the plates and then carting them over to the press room and handing them off to the press operators. So he was back there doing that. So I would do things like sweep. Um, I would uh, assemble uh, newspaper tubes. You know, the tube, the post office wouldn't let you deliver a newspaper into the, into the mailbox. So you would have a separate post stuck next to your mailbox with a, with a newspaper tube, and it'd have the name of the newspaper on the side. And these were all over the country. And it was great advertising for the newspaper, too, because there's the name of the paper. And you could see everybody who had a subscription, because if you subscribed, the carrier would come out and poke the uh, newspaper tube in your yard. So these, there was always a request list. You know, this carrier needed five tubes, because he had signed up five new people. So you had to take the box, the newspaper tube, and attach the bracket to it with four nuts and bolts and a and lock washers, and it was a kind of an L bracket. And then you had to put these two uh, big U bolts through there and put the hardware on, and then get a post. And you had to assemble these parts together, and then stack them on the dock. You know the required number. I might have thirty eight of them to do today, and I'd go back and you know put together thirty eight tubes and stack them on the dock. So that sometime during that week, they would get distributed to the carrier. They could pick them up when they came the next day for their papers. So I'd be doing stuff like that. So Section A would run, and the, the press operators were just pulling them off in 50s and stacking them, just pushing them aside. So maybe I'd be carting, you know, stacks of newspapers and just piling them up on tables. And then uh, the rest of the crew would get there. And there might be six other kids. I say kids, you know, there'd be, you know, 15, 16, 17-year-old guys. A lot, of, a lot of people that I knew from my, my church or from my Boy Scout troop, you know, any kid that kind of needed a job, you know. And what we were there to do, we were inserters. 
So as soon as that press started running with the second section, they're running section B now. We've got all the A's stacked up there, but we need the B. We can't have a full paper until we got A and B. So my first real job was putting B into A. And we had all these tables set up. And at some point during the day, the uh, our supervisor, this guy, well, it was a, a man named Paul, and then later it was a guy named Dennis. He had the list of all the routes and exactly what they needed. So let's say, you know, there was Route 7, and Route 7 might be Mrs. Wright. And Mrs. Wright was a carrier, and she was Route 7, and she required, let's say, 105 newspapers. So our job was to give her bundles of papers. And as the press was getting set up, when the, when the pressmen were, if you've ever watched a, a, a web printing press running, and a web, web press means that the, the paper is a continuous roll of paper. And that's the way most newspapers are printed. And that's called the web so as they're, as they're setting that up, they have to thread the paper through the various sections of the press. And as they're putting on plates and advancing the press, there's a steady stream of blank newspapers coming out. They look like newspapers, but there's no ink there. So these would accumulate, and it was just a blank newspaper. And eventually, as they got the various plates on and continued to run it, you'd begin to get... You know, page two was there, but nothing else. And then you had, you know, page one and two and so on. And eventually when they had all the plates on and had everything running and everything inked up real good and they're looking at them as they're coming off, waiting for them to get good and solid. And at that point, then they'd start counting and delivering the real product. But all that waste paper that came off were a lot of blank newspapers. And uh, what that what our supervisor did is he took those blanks. He had a big stack of them, and he had his his sheet with all his route, uh, the carrier, the route numbers, and their requirements of how many. And he would take an orange crayon and write on these blank, blank newspapers. He'd write like one slash fifty, and set that aside, and then one slash fifty, and then one slash thirty-five. And those sheets, those blank papers, we would put on top of a bundle. And that first number meant the route number, and the second number meant how many papers are in this bundle. So he would build up this stack, which were the, uh, the labels, you might say, for every bundle of papers that we were going to produce that evening. So as the boys got there and he's getting set up, he would dole out these these cover cover papers on on the ends of our table so we know exactly what we've got to build now the pressman there's a little gizmo on the press that they could set it to as the papers are streaming off on the conveyor there's a little kicker a little kick out you could set it to say kick out every 25th paper and it would just jog the paper over to the side so as the person was what we called catching off, whoever was catching off would stick his hand under that one that was jogged out and scoop up 
25 at a time, turn around and jog them on a table and push that stack across. So he's pulling them off exactly counted in 25s. That's what that little jog did, a means of counting. And, of course, the, the press operator, he's watching a little counter go by so that he knows when to pull the plug at the end of the you know, at the end of the run, you know, if he was doing 6,000, he might run, you know, 6,150 and then slow the press down and stop it. So that was a real, um, probably the ultimate position in terms of the ranking of all us kids was to be back there stripping and burning plates. And then usually that person, because he was the highest ranking of, of us, he would get to catch off. So he would get to stand over there by the press and catch off and just turn around and put those bundles out. All of us low lifes that were, you know, new at this, we were inserters. So I would see on my stack, you know, it'd say one slash 50. Okay. So I've got this mountain of section a and I got 25 and 25 of section B I'd grab them off the table where the guy's catching them off and make me a stack of A's and a stack of B's and start whipping open A and putting B into it. And when you started out, you're real slow. You'd be feeling around trying to open that thing and then grabbing the, the, the B on your right and sliding it in there, trying to get it nice and lined up and then set it over to the side and keep going. But you would eventually get faster and faster and faster at this. And they always kept bottles of glycerin around so because your, your hands would get real dry handling that newsprint. And they, your fingertips would get black from that ink. But if you had a little of that glycerin on, you rub that glycerin on your hands, you could just slap your hand down on top of the paper and just squeeze and that thing would open. And your right, that'd be your left hand, and your right hand would just swing and slap that B section into A. Bam, and you'd hear it crack, like the sound of a baseball being hit. Crack as that, as those two centerfolds hit together. Bam, and it would make this cracking sound. And if you were good, and you really hit it just right, that paper would fly off the stack and go, you didn't even have to pick it up and move it to the, to the stack of finished papers it would just sail. So you bam, 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 bam. So here's like five guys all doing this. And you could tell who was slow and who was fast by that sound. And sometimes there would get to be racing going on. You know, you'd, you'd sort of time it. Like you can see that guy, he's doing, he's doing 50 right now. And I got 50 and you'd start. Just going as fast as you could as sort of like, it was like a competition to see who could, who could do it the fastest. And of course there'd be some new kid that just started, never done it before. And he's over there like shuffling them together and picking them up and banging them on the table, trying to get them lined up and stacking and they're sliding off the table onto the floor. And it's just a mess. So this was a skill that you could actually get really good at and fast at. And when you did, it was a, a point of pride. It was sort of like you'd strut over there and just like a machine running. I was very proud of that. I got really good at that, putting B into A. Then the, the fun thing 
was when you finish that stack, you, you put that blank newspaper that had those crayon markings. So you put that on top and you walked it back over to another table where there was a guy there and he was, he ranked above the inserters. He was the dude running the tying machine, the bundle tying machine. And after I'd been there a couple of months, I got moved into that position and that was great because you basically stood there and you had this machine that was, had this big steel table, probably about three feet wide and about, I don't know, three feet deep. And it had this tremendous cage over it, like these steel bands that were like a safety cage type of thing. And underneath was a motor and some, you know, flywheel and gears and all this stuff. And there was at the back, there was a, uh, there was a, like a can with a, a tremendous spool of string in it. You know, you've all seen a ball of kite string. Well, this was like 500 of those. This must've been like 20 miles of string. Just this tremendous spool of string. Well, what this machine did, you took that bundle of papers whatever was the correct number. And, you know, if, if a kid had one of those labels that said 35, there better be 35 in there, not 36. So a lot of times you're counting, right? Here's 25 plus five plus two, you know? And so you had this little stack that was your makeup stack that you could make up bundles of any quantity. Then those were just brought over and set on the table next to the guy that was running the tie-in machine. So that was sort of a higher ranking position because all he had to do was lean to the left, grab a bundle, and it's already got the, the white sheet on top, stick it in this machine and hit a foot pedal. Now that machine is running. There's a flywheel running and a motor running and belts and all this stuff. You could hear it humming. He's got it switched on and it's just running, but nothing's happening. And you take that bundle of papers and you slide it in halfway there's a little slot across there it was like a table with a gap in it about a half inch gap and you'd slide it in there hit that foot pedal and when you did this arm this steel arm would just go and swing around in a in a circle about five feet in diameter maybe it wasn't quite that big but it was pretty big this big arm would swing around over the top of that bundle, pulling the string. It would go underneath. It'd come around twice. It'd swing around that bundle twice. And as soon as it reached, it made two complete revolutions. It would stop, and these little fingers, and this little gizmo would go, and tie a knot and cut the string. And you would pull that bundle out, and... That string had gone around twice and was tied in this really tight little knot, and it's ready to go again. So you'd swing that bundle 90 degrees, shove it in there at the halfway point, hit that pedal again. Shoom, shoom, pull it out. You got a tied bundle, tied both directions. Grab that thing, stick it on the steel table next to you, and give it a shove. Grab the next one. You're just tying bundles. Turn around. Pull it out. Now, if you tried to put one newspaper in there, 
the tension on that string would just wad that paper up. You had to have a stack of, of maybe 15 papers, depending on how thick the paper was. If you're doing Sunday papers, you might, you might be able to tie a bundle out of five. But if, if you just stuck one paper in there, there was so much tension on that string, it would just wad the paper up. And we, we often would uh, use that machine. Sometimes when, we, when we'd get there, there wouldn't be any tubes to make. And we're just killing time, hanging around, trying to be invisible. We'd be, you know, hanging around a Coke machine. And they had one of those old Coke machines that had those little, those little small Coke bottles, six ounces or six and a half, whatever they were. And there was like a, a vertical row of them in this machine. And a little, little door you opened up and you put your, put your money in and just pull the bottle out. Another one would go and fall down in there. And in those days, Coke bottles all had the the name embossed, molded into the bottom of the bottle, the town of the bottler where that bottle was originally issued. So you'd pull one out and look at the bottom of it, and it'd say Atlanta, Georgia. Or you'd pull one out, like I found one recently laying out in the field, America's Georgia. So there were all these, every bottle had an identification on it. And you'd play this little gambling game of matching Coke bottles. Usually we played it in the empties rack. There was this big rack of empty Coke bottles. When you finished, you put them all in this rack. And you would try to match. You'd, you know, bet a quarter and pull two bottles. And if you flipped them over and if the names matched, you won. Like, I got Columbus, Georgia. Columbus, Georgia. I win. Put that money in my pocket. So we're over there gambling, matching Coke bottles and stuff like that, killing time. And if we'd see the boss walk through, we'd, you know, get a broom and sweep a little bit or something. Getting ready, waiting on that press to run. But sometimes it would just be so dead. Maybe they had a problem with the press or there was a something going wrong in the dark room and the the press run was delayed. So you could take that tying machine and get some of those blank newspapers and just wad them up and make a big ball and then fold some paper over it and stick it in that tie machine and tie it about eight times turn a little bit and tie 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 stick another paper on and fold it around wrap it around it tie it about nine more times and eventually you could build a football a reasonable facsimile of a football out of nothing but newspaper and string you might have to pound on a little bit and kind of crunch down this spot and then angle it just right and tie it a couple more times. And let me tell you something. One thing you don't want to do is have your finger in, in the path of that string. You, you got one couple of fingers <laughs> as that string would come around and it'd yank that thing tight. And if your finger's under there, you'd be like trying to dig in your, in your pocket, get your pocket knife out to cut that string to release your finger. And you sure didn't want to have your finger down in that little knot tying gizmo. But they let us run these machines. You know, give you five minutes of instruction. If that, maybe two minutes of instruction. They'd watch you do it twice and then tell you, make sure you don't put your hand in there. And that was it. And they just left you alone. And you did your thing. So anyway, we make this football out of newspaper and string and then go out in the gravel parking lot and play a little game of touch football in the gravel. 
And if, if anybody's curious where this, this newspaper actually was, if you go to downtown Jonesboro and you go right downtown, and this is where the Battle of Jonesboro took place. Battle of Jonesboro and then the Battle of Lovejoy all, all took place during the Civil War. Literally, they were fighting back and forth across the railroad right there in downtown Jonesboro. And if you go to right downtown Jonesboro where the, where the train depot is, it's now just a little reconstructed platform with a roof over it, a little stone building. On the opposite corner from that depot, on Main Street in Jonesboro, was a little strip of stores and stuff. And right there on the corner was McKibben's Furniture. It was a furniture store downstairs, and I don't remember what was upstairs. If you walked around to the back of McKibben's, all those stores had a basement. There was a basement under that whole basic little city block. And back in the day, after the Civil War, every one of those back entrances, you'd go down some stairs into a little, into the basement of the building. Those were all beer joints. And the, the, uh, the uh, anti-booze people eventually got all those shut down. But So that was way before my time. Like a long time before my time, but those basements were there and the newspaper used to store stuff in there. I remember they had tremendous cases of, of uh, letterpress type stored in that basement under McKibben's furniture. And maybe he just like, yeah, you can put stuff down there. Cause I remember they sent me over there one time to look for something, you know, just a rat infested basement. But I, I found out later that those were all beer joints that got closed down during the temperance movement in the late 1800s early 1900s but if you were coming out if you were coming up the stairs of one of those beer joints there would be a just an alleyway there and the next building you saw was where the newspaper was and they had a, a it was nothing but gravel parking lots and stuff like that so that's where i worked and we'd play touch football with that homemade football out in that gravel parking lot Waiting on the press run and stuff like that. Now, another thing sometimes I would do if I had time to kill, and there were often delays in the paper being run. So if you worked there on Tuesday night, you had no idea when you were coming home. You might get done at 10 o'clock. You might get done at midnight. Who knows? I was kind of up in the air. But eventually, the whole... The whole press run was done. We had made all the bundles and carted all that to the dock. And somebody was, you know, loading them into a van because they were going to drive that van that night. Late, late, late Tuesday night, they would drive down to that neighboring county and throw all those bundles off onto the dock, the back door of that newspaper. And if you were lucky, and I often got this because I didn't have a car. You know, the guys with cars, when it got to be about 11 o'clock and we were done, they'd want to go. Well, I didn't have a car. I didn't even have a driver's license. So often I stuck around and got the job of riding with the, the supervisor and taking all those bundles down and delivering them. And, and we had two or three pickup locations down there we would drop. You know, these, this group of bundles at the newspaper office, then we'd go to the, 
the post office in Tyrone and throw out stuff there. And we would go over to this other building. You know, there was a shed next to a machine shop where the carriers picked up their bundles, come in there. It's, you know, midnight or one o'clock in the morning and toss off all these bundles. And eventually the van was empty. And this guy who worked for my dad would drive me home and drop me off. And I'm out walking the house. It'd be one o'clock in the morning and just slip in the house. Mom and dad have already been bowling their home. The whole house is asleep. And I'd come slipping in, go to bed next morning, get up and go to school. That's what it was like working at the newspaper for that grand sum of a dollar 60 an hour. So when you arrived there, the boss would have a stack of checks in his shirt pocket. He'd hand you your check. Well, if I had time, and he usually did, if I was, I would get there a few minutes early, so I had time to do this. Well, just across the street was the bank. And I would trot over there proud as a peacock with my check, and I would walk into the bank, sign the check, and cash the check. And I would always ask for it in half dollars. And the reason I did that was I knew I was sort of a coin collector, too. My dad was a coin collector. I knew that there were still silver half dollars floating around in circulation. They'd taken the silver out of the coins beginning in 1965, but it remained in the half dollar all the way through 1970, technically 69. So here we are, you know, in 1972 or three, and there were still, you could find a, a, if you got a roll of half dollars, you'd find maybe half of them would still be the silver ones, the ones that contained 40% silver. So I would go over there each week and get my pay, 834, and I'd get it. I'd get me 16 half dollars and some extra change, and then I would sort through them and pull out all the silver ones and set aside the ones that were copper nickel, the newer ones, anything 1971 or later, which, you know, I was finding 50-50 in those days. And I would save the silver ones and spend the copper nickel ones. And just like that pay stub, believe it or not, I still have all those silver dollars from about a year of working there. Not silver dollars, silver, 40% silver half dollars. I just saved them. I saved them, put them in little tubes. I don't know how many there are. I don't know. Probably a, maybe a couple of hundred of them. And uh, still got them. I don't know what I'll ever do with them. You know, I could spend them for 50 cents, but the price of silver has gone up. Back in those days, I think, you know, the price of silver was about, I don't know, $2.40 an ounce. Today, I think it's, as of today, probably around 16 bucks an ounce. And there was a time that it, it shot up to, I think it was at 45 bucks an ounce at one point. So anyway, that's my little, that was my... You might consider the the poor man's 401k from back when I was in high school, junior high. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this little trip down memory lane of my first real paying job. I'll talk to you in the next podcast. <laughs>